I love the lyric of one of those songs uh, that we sang. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Sometimes, you know, we sing those songs and I'm not sure if we really like believe it or, you know, would just naturally say that, but like we're in church and we're singing a song, so we probably ought to sing it. But I, I want to ask you a question because that's, that's actually a great kind of overview of our whole passage this morning. So I want to start with a question. This is the best place on earth to ask this question, okay? So have you sinned lately? <laughs> Dan says, yeah, thanks, Dan. <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, in case you're wondering or you, you need something to kind of jog your memory, let me throw up a list here. This is in Galatians 5. We'll just, we'll just kind of run down at sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Like there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and, and then I love it ends with things like these. Well, there's more? Um, you could Google biblical sins list. I did that, and the list is long. It really is. So my hunch is, when I ask this question, have you sinned lately? The answer probably is yes, and if it isn't, maybe we should have a conversation. Um, but, but more important than the fact that you and I sin is how we respond to that. What do you do with sin in your life? Now, in my experience of ministry and just my personal experience, there's a lot of ways that I could or have responded and others as well. Denial is a favorite, right? It's just we kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's, it's not there. Uh, we might condone it, which is to say, well, I, you know, I don't know what the Bible says or what my church says or whatever else, but I think it's just fine. Uh, we might excuse it. For whatever reason, like we can justify just about anything. We can come up with something to say, well, it's, it's really okay, even though it might not look like it. We might shift into a response, uh, you've probably heard of this, self-loathing, where you begin to just say, I didn't do something bad, it's like, I'm bad. Uh, or maybe shift into self-pity, I'm a victim. Like all this stuff happened to me, and so therefore my sin is okay. Um, many of us can be guilty of negotiating with God over our sin, you know, just trying to barter with him. I, I'll give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you can kind of wipe that away. And we're, like we're entering into this transaction with God as if that's going to do something. And, and that's the thing that strikes me about these responses. None of them do absolutely anything about sin. When you sin, if you go down any of those pathways, guess what? You're still stuck with your sin at the end of it. So the question we want to ask and answer, and I think this passage is going to really help us, how can we deal with our sin in such a way that we're different as a result? And God most definitely is committed to that. Uh, the Bible tells us a few things about sin. First of all, it does say it's universal. So again, if there was anybody here that was wondering, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only that, uh, sin is not only just doing what's wrong, but it's also failing to do what's right. Those are two great categories for us to think in. 
when we're thinking about how we live and walk and relate. Um, The Bible says that sin is very consequential. It actually says that the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. Death. And that's not just physical death, that's spiritual death, separation from God. That is the great problem of all of humanity. Best news of all, the Bible tells us that there is a remedy that has nothing to do with you or me performing, justifying, excusing, transacting, whatever. There's a remedy for us. And I think the, the author of Hebrews may have that in mind as he's getting into chapter 9. He is correcting a grave error that these readers are in danger of making. Um, they, of course, were dealing with sin just like we do. Maybe it was a different version, different culture and all of that. But still they had this issue, this great affliction of sin... And there were obviously a number of ways that they could approach that. We've talked about the fact that these are Christians, so there was some point in their life where they asked God to forgive them of their sin. But they are entertaining the the idea of going back to a former way of dealing with sin that the writer is going to say is worthless. I think there's a way for us to connect with that. Not going back to Judaism, but maybe something else. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But he's going to use an illustration using something that he gave to Israel when he called them out of Egypt. So you'll remember they were enslaved to Egypt. He delivered them. They went out into the wilderness and spent 40 years there. And then they got into the promised land and they established that land. But one of the first things God gave them was an earthly tent. It's called a tabernacle. You can read about the uh, introduction of this in Exodus 25, uh, but really all that we're going to talk about today, if you were to go read the book of Exodus, I know some of you are probably close to there or maybe past it in your Bible reading schedule, but uh, there's a ton of information about this tabernacle. And if in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, it says, let them, God is talking to Moses, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God gave them a place, he called it a tabernacle, where he would dwell with them In the wilderness, it was a temporary tent, and it traveled with them from place to place. And of course, again, they used that for 40 years, but then they used it for another 440 years in the promised land before King Solomon built a permanent temple. That would have been around 960 B.C. So the author of Hebrews is going to use this structure as a teaching tool to help his people um, understand something about how they are uh, dealing with sin. There's a few names for this structure. You've heard me say tabernacle, and that's really pointing to that idea of God dwelling with his people. It's a place where God dwells. Uh, He mentioned the sanctuary, and that's pointing to the holy character, the sacred nature 
of this particular structure. It's called a tent, which just points to its temporary quality. It's called the tent of meeting, which points to the communal or the gathering aspect of this structure. And then lastly, it's called the tent of the testimony. This was the place where uh, the um, commitments of God in the ark and the law, they were located inside this structure. So let me um, read to you in verses 1 through 5 a little bit of a description of this place, and then we'll see how the author uses this description for his purposes. Beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant and the regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Um, Just as an aside, I'm not sure what details he's leaving out or chose not to address. Um, I think he assumed that they would have been very familiar with this structure, even if they had never seen it or whatever on their own. By this time, there was a permanent temple. But they would have been familiar. We, however, are not So uh, we're probably going to hit a few more details than he did, but I want us to be familiar with this structure. So all in all, we're going to go into the wilderness with Israel. There was a perimeter set up, a fence that was 75 feet approximately by 150 feet. That was the outer section, and it created a court. Within the outer court was this actual tent called the tabernacle, and it was about... 15 feet by 45 feet. It was divided into two sections. There was the front section you can see there called the holy place. And that was about 30 feet in length. Again, 15 feet wide. There was what we call furniture or elements that were used in there for worship by the priests. And then 30 foot in, you would have a t- you had a curtain, a veil... That separated that section from the back section, which was just 15 by 15 feet, called the most holy place, or in some translations you'll see it referred to as the holy of holies. So this is the tent of meeting. This is the place where the Levitical priests do their job. In that first section called the holy place, two things are mentioned, a lampstand and then the table of showbread. The lampstand was also called a menorah. It was rather tall, solid gold, one piece, probably weighed 75 pounds or more, so a pretty big structure. And uh, olive oil was put in the tops of the, um, the extensions off of there, and those were lit, and that's the only thing that provided light inside the temple. There were no windows. There was no way for light to get in there. So that menorah provided light. 
also symbolizing the illumination that God would give his people from his dwelling place. Then secondly, the table of showbread is mentioned. So 12 loaves of bread were placed on a table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were swapped out every week on the Sabbath by the priests. And that was to symbolize the sustaining presence. They're called the bread of presence. The sustaining presence of God among his people, even while they're traveling through the wilderness. That's in the holy place. Then we come to the curtain and we enter into the most holy place or the holy of holies. And three other things are mentioned. First of all, the golden altar of incense. Just a little detail here. Um, If you read most commentators and all that, they will mention that that altar of incense, which is just a small box kind of table, was actually located on the holy place side of the veil. But because of its use and its significance with the most holy place, it's included in there. But basically, a priest would come in and take incense from the altar of incense and take it in with him to the Holy of Holies. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But that was located just outside the veil. Behind the veil was the golden ark of the covenant, which was just kind of think Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You guys can imagine uh, the ark there. It contained three things. The golden urn holding the manna. God provided manna for his people while they were wandering in the wilderness. He was feeding them and sustaining them. That represents God's physical provision and care for his people. Secondly, you have Aaron's staff that budded. That was a miraculous occurrence, but it, was, it coincided with God assigning Aaron as a priest of Israel and all of his descendants. So that reminds us of God's spiritual provision and care. So he makes provision for their physical needs, their spiritual needs. And then finally, the tablets of the covenant, that's the Ten Commandments, that's God's law for his people. So that's his revelatory provision and care. He's giving them truth and wisdom and direction so that they can prosper in life. So all of those things... Behind the veil, in the ark, represent God's care. But not only that, he wants to symbolize his presence, and that's where what is called the mercy seat comes in. And the mercy seat is really just a cover, a lid over the ark. And on top of that lid were two angelic uh, creatures uh, made again from gold, and they were over the mercy seat. You see their wings coming together. All of that sort of focused in this singular place where God was said to dwell. That was where he came to be among his people. Now, it is kind of interesting if you think about it. There's a whole lot between the people and where he's dwelling. Uh, We'll get to more of that in just a moment. But all of this was meant to represent the presence of God... And the possibility of reconciliation. So remember our question, have you sinned lately? Certainly we all have. And for the people of Israel, this was God's introduction for how reconciliation might take place. And they were invited to engage in that. 
Now, as I just kind of mentioned, it's, it's a little bit ironic that this is the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, but it seems like there's restricted access. So uh, we're going to see that there weren't a whole lot of people that ever made it anywhere into the tabernacle and only one that could actually get into the Holy of Holies. So God, in this sense, seems very distant and we, we ought to wonder what's up with that. If God wants to dwell with his people, why is it so hard to get close? It's interesting in the book of Hebrews, remember, our title to the series is Draw Near. Can you imagine being an Israelite, seeing this tabernacle, and, and it's saying, don't come near, send somebody else. So kind of an interesting instruction visually as they think about this altar. So let's, let, let's take a look at restricted access beginning in verse 6. These preparations, which we just looked at, the layout, the furniture, the structure, all of that, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section, uh, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Someone asked me a question after the first service about the unintentional sins of the people. There was a whole lot going on. Again, read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you're going to see there's a whole lot that goes on in and around this temple. Unintentional sins were basically those sins that were not done with a high hand, which would be kind of the utter expression of rebellion against God. That's a way too simplistic explanation, but that'll get you started, and maybe you can do some reading on your own. But, but let's look at what the priests were doing. As they went into that first section, again, only priests were allowed. And they had a daily routine where they would go into that space. First of all, they would actually uh, offer sacrifices outside of the tent, they would take coals and ashes into the tent, and then they had a lot of duties while they were in there. They had to keep the menorah lit, so they had to replace the olive oil and the wicks that were kind of going there. And then on the other side, they had the table of showbread, and they had to replenish that table every week on the Sabbath with that bread. The priests would actually eat the bread from the previous week. That was part of their routine. And then the altar of incense, which I mentioned just outside the veil, they would bring coals and ashes from the sacrifices outside. Those would sit there and then they would put incense on that and that would burn perpetually representing the prayers of God's people to God. Here's the question on that. Why do they have to keep doing it? It's like there's this routine, these activities that are required by God. No one else is able to except this very small group of people, and they just have to keep doing it. It seems like they might not be accomplishing all that the people would have expected. So just hold that thought, and then let's go into the second, uh, the second section here. Think about the high priest... So only one person enters the Holy of Holies, 
one time a year. And he has to bring blood with him, a sacrifice, which would satisfy the wrath of God and make room for reconciliation between God and sinful humanity. So what the priest would do is he would go through a very rigorous week of ritual cleansing prior to the Day of Atonement, this one day a year. Then he would sacrifice a bull for his sins and the sins of his family. He would offer that. He would go in, do all of that, come back out. Then he would sacrifice a goat, and the blood of that goat would also be brought in to the mercy seat, and that would satisfy God's wrath against the sins of Israel. Now, you would think after doing all of that, if if it was really satisfactory, then he's done, right? Wrong. That veil stays up, and he's going to have to come back if he's still alive and do the very same thing again a year later. What that's telling us is those sacrifices, they did achieve something, and here it is, ceremonial cleansing, which just really allowed the people to continue to engage in community and in the acts of worship that they did as as God's people. But it didn't address that greatest affliction of sin that all of them had. So they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. Therefore, there is a built-in deficiency with the tabernacle. And, and that's on purpose. God obviously put it in place. It, it was meant to be a shadow, a symbol, a pattern of something that would eventually come that would do for God's people what the tabernacle, what the priests, what these animal sacrifices could never do, actually deal with their sin. And that's where we uh, pick up in verse 8. We see that the Holy Spirit is highlighting that instruction now in the letter to the Hebrews. Verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as the tabernacle is operational, then something's wrong. There's, There's a sin problem that's going unaddressed. But that assumes that there's going to be a day when the tabernacle shuts down. We're going to find out why. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, here's the problem, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, All of these rituals, all of these routines, all of these practices were exterior in nature. Again, they made these people ceremonially clean, but it didn't address the issues of the heart. It actually says it could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And that word conscience... That's really pointing to an awareness of good and evil. So we all have a conscience. I would say that's probably even associated with us bearing God's image. So we have a knowledge of good and evil, but then we also have an understanding that we're part of the problem. So when we are asked, have you sinned lately? We're like, yep, yeah, I have just this morning. 
or just yesterday or just last week or I don't know how often you sin, but uh, we, we have a sense about our responsibility for that and we'll even feel a sense of maybe guilt or shame or some of those things that are associated with violating God's ideal, falling short of the mark. The tabernacle, like the law, is instructive. What it did for God's people in that era was it said to them, your sin creates separation. And something has to be done in order to bridge that separation and give you the the access to God that you want and need. And honestly, that he wants with you. But the repetition of all of that ritual, all of those sacrifices, tells the people it's not done yet until Jesus. And that's where we pick up in uh, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews is saying this is a deficient entity. It's serving a purpose, sort of like the law. It's making you ready for God's final solution. Look in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that was another ritual, cleansing ritual that could be done. If those sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the exterior, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus, as the high priest, he didn't just merely expose everyone's sin, and he didn't just go through a ritual that perpetuated that lesson. He literally did something about it. And He didn't do what the other priests did, and that was to bring an innocent, morally vacant animal and uh, killed it and then bring bring the blood in to present on the mercy seat. He, He didn't do that. He shed his own blood. He presented himself to God as an adequate sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And that is the very thing that should have, even though it didn't, it should have shut down all of that temple worship. Because everyone would have said, his sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated. It's once and for all. He has completely satisfied the wrath of God. The sins of humanity, they have been dealt with. Very practically speaking, we read in our Gospels, the veil that separated the outside from the inside was torn wide open. So because of the sacrifice of Christ as an unblemished lamb, complete access was made available to uh, anyone who would believe. 
anyone who would trust, anyone who would ask for Jesus to make a payment for them that they could never make on their own. So access was granted because of this better sacrifice. Um, there's a really cool phrase in here. It says, through the eternal spirit. And certainly, I believe the Holy Spirit was instrumental in all this. But I loved a description that I came across saying that Jesus acted in perfect submission. Think about Jesus as an eternal member of the Godhead, right? He was with God the Father in heaven, left heaven, came to earth, lived his life, death, burial, resurrection, returns to the literal holy of holies, the presence of the Father, in perfect communion, restored once again with him, having paid for the sins of humanity. So he he consented to, he wasn't made to do it. He consented, he submitted perfectly to the will of the Father so that you and I could have access to him one day by trusting in him. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. For those of us who have trusted in him, it says our conscience is purified from dead works. Those dead works are certainly those things which lead to death, spiritual death. But I also think because of the warning passages and because of the struggle that these uh, Hebrew believers are having, I, I think it's also a caution against looking to anything other than the perfect sacrifice of Christ as a means of being right with God. So like, here's how I have tried to associate myself with this passage. Um, I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism. Like I, I didn't grow up in that. That's, that's no, there's no reference point in that for me. But here's what I can relate to. When I was a little boy, I believed there was a God. And I believe I, I had no questions about his existence, but I had a lot of questions about what he thought about me. I didn't think he was very interested in me. I didn't think he really cared if I had a relationship with him or not. And all I was really interested in was getting to heaven. And my thought was, my way of salvation was, well, if I can just be good enough, if, if my good deeds can outweigh my bad deeds, then that's what I'll present to God. And hopefully he'll say, good job, Monty. Come on in here. Let's, uh, let's spend eternity together. But the scriptures are very clear that no amount of good deeds will get it done. It's just like those sacrifices that those priests offered again and again and again and again. The blood of bull and goats cannot cover sin. Only the blood of the perfect high priest laid down voluntarily for your good and mine. So... I can relate to the temptation, even as a believer, when I sin, to really drift from this idea that it's been paid for. It is finished. There has been one sacrifice made for all of my sin, past, present, and future. I can drift back into that idea that, man, I got to tighten it up here. I got to shape up. I got to do something good for God so that we can, you know, be okay. That's not true. 
It either is okay or it isn't okay. Now, I'm a child of God. God is at work in my life. He will discipline me. He will correct me. But all of that because the relationship is secure. I have unhindered access into his presence, not because of my performance, but because of the performance of Christ, having laid down his life on my behalf. We all are tempted to deal with a guilty conscience, with the reality of sin in our life in a a number of ways that are not consistent with this truth of Christ's sacrifice. And as we said even a couple of weeks ago, the fact that he is making constant intercession on our behalf in the presence of the Father. So here's what I thought we would do today. I asked you to think about sin in your life. I know that's not a fun question to ask or answer. But I said there's a remedy, and we know what that remedy is. So what I want to give you an opportunity to do is to deal with the sin that you're aware of in your life. It's something that we need to do with regularity. Not in the salvific sense, right? That's settled. But sin still has just real-time consequences, relational consequences, like my sin affects my family, my friends, my coworkers, my church. So we're invited to deal with our sin in light of the fact that Jesus has dealt with it in a final way. Um, in Christ, we're not sinless, but we're free of its power. So we don't ever have to sin. And if we do sin, we, we chose to do that. So then there's a way for us to address that with a gracious, merciful God. I want to share a couple of passages with you, and maybe you can even look at these in your devotional time this week. But when you sin, here's what you do. And we'll give it uh, some time this morning. Um, Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Simply put, uh, grief or sorrow, you've heard of godly sorrow. So if I see my sin and I am grieved by that, that's a great start to a lot of change. Because then I can, just, I can just go, it is what it is, I don't have to go to these other places of denial or excusing or condoning or justifying or whatever. I can just say that what I'm seeing, I can be honest about that and do something about it. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So when you see your sin... All you're seeing is what God already knows. And he's not the least bit turned off by that. He already dealt with it. Now he's saying, I want you to recognize and apply what God has done on your behalf. Deal with that sin. Don't just let it sit there. 1 John 1, 9 and 10, here it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. There's that cleansing picture again. From all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, here's the process. You and I, we, we ask God to show us our sin. Just ask him. And when he does, we hopefully see it the way he sees it. It's offensive. But again, God doesn't step back. <laughs> he stays right there and he says, come on. Uh, we agree with God. That's confession. We agree with God that it is what it is. And then we ask for help. We don't need to ask him to do what he already did through our high priest, Jesus. All we need to do is say, I, I don't want to go down that road. Help me. Um, it's interesting, the community aspect of it as well. We confess to God. We ask for his help. But then we're in a community of faith. And so I would urge you, you, you need to have at least, at least one person in your life that you can be honest with. You can just bring your junk and set it on the table and just say, here it is. And uh, I want to change. Will you help me? And that's what we get to do for each other. We pray for each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable. We do a lot. And we can change. That's what God intended. He, he did not intend the religious rituals of the tabernacle. It was just a shadow. He meant for us to live in the truth, live in the light, and pursue growth and change. So, whatever it was that came to mind at the beginning of this message for you, God's not surprised. So I want to give you an opportunity, just a few minutes. We've got some time. Do some business with God based on the business that Jesus already did with his very life. And uh, ask him to show you what you need to see. Agree with him that it is what it is. Ask him to bring about growth and change. And then most importantly, thank him that he has already done everything that needs to be done on his end to bring about growth and change in your life. Take a moment and interact with the Lord, and then I'll pray. Father God, we're uh, thankful for this picture that we've been given. The tabernacle was an imperfect place, but it was intended to point us to our perfect high priest who would once and for all 
offer a sacrifice that would satisfy your wrath and set us free. Make us new. Lord, Paul writes that uh, you've qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're thankful that that work is finished. That that ransom paid so that we could be forgiven and made new. Lord, would you help us to walk in light of that truth? And wherever we fall short, would help us to see it, to own it, to confess it, and to invite your uh, care and correction and ultimate change. Lord, would we be a church full of people who uh, deal with our sin as you intended? And uh, Lord, could we be a voice of hope to others who have yet to uh, deal with their sin? I thank you for that in Jesus' name.